Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. So great to be with you today. I am so excited today to start a new summer series that we are calling Table Talk. And the primary truth that we will be exploring with Jesus is this. Really good things happen around tables. Think of it this way. How many of you have ever resolved a conflict around a table? How many of you have ever found yourself finally coming out of a financial crisis while around perhaps your dining table? How many of you have had deep and revelatory conversations around a table? Here's one. How many of you have laughed so hard that your beverage came squirting out of your nose around a table? (laughs) Yes, good things happen around tables. In fact, scientists tell us that there is a dopamine release, that that feel-good chemical in our brain. Uh, That dopamine release happens twice when we have a really good meal. It happens the first time when we consume it and the second time when it actually hits our gut. So a dopamine double whammy takes place around a dining table. With that, it's not so surprising that scripture is filled with story after story of amazing things happening around tables. In fact, there are so many stories around tables in Scripture that I had to lock this series into just a sampling of the events that take place in just the book of Luke in Scripture. Because as Christy McClellan points out, it seems like Jesus was either always going to a meal, being at a meal, or coming from a meal. So much so that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, Jesus was neither of those things. But the fact that that accusation was leveled at him meant they saw Jesus going to the table all the time, which is so beautiful that it reminds us, it it reminds us that this culture that Jesus not only walked in, but designed the culture of the Hebrews, it was a culture of celebration, For them, it was always good food and good wine and good music. And they have so many festivals as a culture. They're always pointing to the goodness of God in these festivals. It's always a party in that culture. Yet somehow on this side, we've managed to make God's community look stale and refined. Jesus loved to celebrate. He loved to gather at tables, and I am sure there were times when he laughed so hard that goat milk shot right out of his nose. (laughs) See, many of the most powerful events in Scripture took place around this powerful tool in God's arsenal, the dinner table. Now, just so we get the right picture in our mind, Uh, A quick word about Roman, Greek, and Middle Eastern dining during the time of Jesus. For starters, it was likely they didn't sit at the table in chairs and with a a, a raised table. Um, Instead, they reclined on pillows at a low table or even a large mat. Think like a, a picnic blanket. Now, I was curious as to why 
that was part of the culture. And here's at least part of the why. For Romans, they would have had these lengthy feasts, and they felt that lying down when eating aided in their digestion. That was the thought. It was also, by the way, common and encouraged to pass gas while at those events. Uh, they didn't want people to be bloated and uncomfortable. By the way, that won't be part of our conversation, but it's just good to know. You know, it, it sort of creates a different image, I think, in our minds about what those events were like. A little less Downton Abbey, a little more Blazing Saddles. I think that's what you can imagine. So there was that reason. But there was also a more important reason. In that day, eating while reclining was a symbol of freedom. Only slaves or those seen as property ate on chairs. And so the Hebrews adopted this form of dining as an expression of their freedom to be used especially during their festivals to remind them of God's deliverance. And so with that, it is quite reasonable to assume that Jesus and the apostles were lying down as they ate, especially during the Passover meal that we look at today. Now to help us picture this further, as they ate, people in that region and at that time, they reclined on their left elbow and they ate with their right hand. This was because the left hand was used for kind of the final part of the digestive process, if you know what I mean. And so you didn't want that spoiling your meal, so you ate with your right hand. So picture them all around here. They are reclining on their left elbow. Legs are out behind them. They're likely in a U-shape around a table or around that mat so that other people could easily bring more food to them in the opening. That's the image. And that is where good things begin to happen around tables. Leading us to the table we find ourselves at today, the table of sacrifice. And I'll say this first thing about the table of sacrifice, that an old debt is revealed at the table of sacrifice. That's the first thing. An old debt is revealed at the table of sacrifice. We're going to be in Luke 22, starting verse 7. Let's read it right, right where you are. Big voices go. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. So here's something that stands out to me. It's obvious to us now on this side that Jesus was doing a very new thing in this moment. What is striking to me is that he's doing that new thing within the structure of the old thing. Okay, here's what I mean. The Passover festival was this old thing with all its special foods and special preparation. It was all about remembering when Israel was delivered from Egypt, where God had brought plagues to the Pharaoh and to Egypt to try to get him to let God's people go. 
But the Pharaoh was stubborn. And he didn't do so, didn't let them go until the very last plague, when, when an angel of death was sent to kill the firstborn of all in Egypt, a horrific plague, a devastating plague. And so, to protect the Hebrews from that, God had them cover their doors with the blood of an unblemished lamb so that death itself would pass over them, hence the name Passover. That was the old thing they were remembering at Passover, the old structure that Jesus was about to bring a new covenant to. A covenant not made in the temporary blood of a lamb, but one made permanent through the blood of the Lamb of God. That Jesus was and is the final Passover lamb, making it possible that death could pass over us for eternity. And so this whole section of scriptures about the disciples making preparations to remember what had been done while Jesus is preparing himself for what he was about to do. It's incredibly full circle. I just love how God doesn't waste anything. He uses all of it. God didn't just throw away all of that history and just say, here's the new covenant in Jesus and it's totally separate. No, he redeemed all of it. He added meaning. He finished the story. God fulfilled the promise. God completed the work. Jesus was able to make a new thing come out of an old thing. And guess what? God can do the same with us. God can make a new thing come out of an old thing. I've mentioned often how much my family and I, we love thrifting. We love the hunt for treasure in thrift stores. We have sort of a route we go through in town. And, um, and we love the process of looking past maybe the condition of an item to see what that potentially could be. And because of that, if you go through our house or our closets, you will see many things that would have been thrown away but are now used for a vibrant purpose, whether it's the Art Deco bedroom set in Isaac's room that we got from St. Vinny's or the, the lamp from Goodwill or the outdoor chairs from a garage sale, not to mention items of brass that sit by our sink so soaking in ketchup, by the way because that's what actually restores them to their bright finish. I don't know if you knew that little, little tip for you, little DIY tip for you there. That's how you make them shiny again, soak them and catch them. But in all of that, we are surrounded by stories of redemption. And those stories make us feel like we're at home. Here's why. Stories of redemption make us feel at home because we will never be truly home until we're redeemed. So it, put, it puts our hearts at home. And, and friends, that is the story that Jesus wants to write in our lives. That is the picture of God's church, of this place, that the sacrifice of Jesus allows what is lost to be found allows what has been thrown away to be restored, allows what is dead to come back to life, and that is true for each and every one of us. 
that when Jesus comes into our life, he doesn't just throw the old away. Instead, he takes the old and he makes it new. And he does so by saying, here's the problem. It's the problem of death. I'm here to fix it. Because an old debt is revealed at the table of sacrifice. That's the first thing. Here's the second. A full payment is made at the table of sacrifice. Let's continue the passage. Big voices go. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the, the Jewish people had, for them, every element of the Passover meal meant something. Okay, that's what they were taking. Every element of the meal had, had, had symbolism, had meaning for them. And so Jesus could easily have used any of the elements of that Passover meal to, to help us remember. It could have been the bitter herbs or the dates that were on the, the table. But it was completely intentional here that Jesus would pick the bread and the wine for us to remember. To the Hebrews... The bread that was used at Passover, this, this was unleavened, simple, poor food. It was the bread of affliction. Okay? It was the symbol of poverty, of slavery, of bondage. Wine, however, was the celebration. It, it was, it was the, the image of redemption, of emancipation, of freedom. Okay? This is, for us, a picture of the human condition. We're born into slavery. We're longing for redemption. So just look, picture it now. Jesus is there. Here on this side of the table is the bread of affliction. On the other side is the cup of redemption. And who is the bridge standing between the two? It's Jesus. Jesus is the bridge between affliction and redemption. Jesus is who makes Redemption possible. Jesus would give his body and blood to make redemption happen. Jesus would then fully pay the debt. Recently at our house, um, we got some new toilet paper, different brand of toilet paper. Um, sometimes you don't read the label when you get that kind of stuff. Uh, it all kind of looks the same, right? And so you just kind of get what's, what's available. And so we thought it was just similar kind of toilet paper to what we're used to. Um, and I, as we got it home, uh, we realized, I, I believe they label it single ply. Um, more accurately, I would say it's half ply. I mean, this stuff is so <laughs> thin. I, I, I mean, I, I more, I, it is so incredibly thin. It is, it is paper thin. In fact, you can read through it. I don't have to mention to you why I know that, but I, I know you can read through this stuff. It is so incredibly 
thin, and it's so thin that when we have guests over, I feel like I just have to tell them, hey, just so you know, it's really thin stuff in there. I just, I just you know, want to set expectations. I don't want you to be frustrated. It's going to be a bad experience. I just apologize in advance for the experience that you're about to have in our bathroom because that stuff is thin. I'm sorry we got this stuff. We wanted to do the job. It won't really do the job, just so you know. It's a partial fix. It's not complete. See, Passover, it points to a partial fix, not complete. But here at this table, Jesus reveals this complete fix, whole. This is God's full payment for death made here at the table of sacrifice. I mean, aren't you grateful? That Jesus looked at death and gave his life so that Jesus could stamp over that word death in big letters, red letters, paid in full. Full payment is made at the table of sacrifice. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. A deep wound is revealed at the table of sacrifice. Let's finish this passage. Big voices go. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Now, we're told in Scripture that Jesus was tempted in all things and yet was without sin. And here we see... I think what could be one of the greatest temptations of all in terms of its corruption to our heart, Jesus experienced what it was like to be betrayed, not by a stranger, not by an enemy, but by a friend. Next to Jesus, at the table of sacrifice, sat the betrayer. Now, John 13 fills in some of the details of this event, including uh, it adds the detail of this was the night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He did that before they ate. It was prior to the meal. But then John 13 takes us to this moment that we're talking about. Now, remember, they are reclining, their legs out behind, which would have made it easy for Jesus to go around and wash their feet that way. But also, it would have made it easy for John to lean back against Jesus to ask him a question because he would have been lying just right next to him, up on his left elbow, as we talked about. And so John could have easily just kind of leaned back and gone, hey, who, who is it, Jesus? Who, who's the one who's going to betray you? And in John 13, 26 to 30, Jesus answers him. Jesus answered, it is the one whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. 
So again, picture this. It seems likely that John is on Jesus' right side, reclining next to him. And so it's easy for him to just lean against his chest and ask him a question. Hey, who's the, who's the one that's going to betray you? Okay, we got that. It could be that reclining at the left side of Jesus, and, and actually what was a, a, a highly esteemed place of honor at the table, it could have been Judas. Because he was close enough for Jesus to hand him bread, to dip the bread and to hand it to Judas. So he had to be close. So it could have been that that's where he was. Now, understand this. In the Jewish culture, offering a piece of bread during a meal was a gesture of special affection. It was a gesture of friendship, and it was also a gesture of reconciliation. I want things to be good between us. And for that to happen, Judas should have responded by then, in reply, dipping a piece of bread in the dish and giving it to Jesus in return, saying, yes, we're good, Jesus. Yes, I, I, we are reconciled. We're together. I'm with you. That's what should have happened. What it shows us is that even at this time, Jesus is offering Judas an alternative to betrayal. You don't have to do this. But instead, Judas rejects the offer and leaves the room. And it, it would have been a great insult to do so if that's what happened. This rejection shows us that Judas had irreversibly made up his mind to betray Jesus when Satan entered into him. No wonder Jesus said to Judas, do quickly what you're going to do. Now, the rest of the disciples would not have heard that conversation. They would not have known why Jesus left, but Jesus knew. They wouldn't have known why Judas left so quickly, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew he was betrayed. Jesus knew he was rejected. Jesus knew he was set up by the one who reclined at the table with him. That's a hard thing. Maybe you've felt that. Maybe you know that same feeling of being rejected by one who sat at the table with you. Maybe it was in a marriage. Maybe it was in a friendship, maybe it was a family member. And that betrayal, it cuts so deep because only friends are allowed that place into our hearts. No one else is led into that place. And from that deeply personal place, they drew the knife. So you might ask, how does one recover from that? Well, well I think there's some hope. And I think it's in verse 22. It says, the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man will do what God gave him to do, but woe to the man who betrays him. It shows us that as bad as that is, as painful as that rejection must have felt, that none of it would stand in the way of what Jesus was going to do. None of it would stop Jesus. That at the cross, even a wound as jagged, and deep as that of the betrayal of a friend can be forgiven and healed there at the cross. Now, I, I don't know what happened with Judas. We do see Judas seized with remorse in Matthew 27. 
But all of that story with Judas is in God's hands. I don't know the end of that story. But for us, the lesson we can learn at this table is this. The brutal action of man will never be enough to overpower the benevolent action of Christ. As man, we throw our worst at God, which is why God in turn throws God's best at us. That's Jesus, his son. God's best. And God's best overrides our worst. And I think that's pretty encouraging because our worst is pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, we, it's amazing the stuff that, that, that we can mess up. You know, one of the things we like to do a lot of times um, when we go to Disneyland, we did this on the last time, we'll, we'll, we'll tell each other stories of parents melting down or kids melting down. It's just sort of a fun thing to observe at Disneyland because it really isn't always the happiest place on earth. And, uh, and the latest one from this last trip was a parent uh, sort of walking out, out of the park. Paula told me about this one, and they were kind of all lined up, you know, the family sort of walking single file, and a parent turns to the one behind them and says, next time we come here, we're not taking you. <laughs> I don't know what that kid did, but it must have been bad, you know. <laughs> here's, here's the truth. Our worst is bad, but God's best is better. And Jesus is God's best. We will, in life, have deep wounds. We will have betrayals. But none of those things are outside of God's ability to heal because a deep wound is revealed at the table of sacrifice. I'll wrap up with this. I find it interesting that of all the things that Jesus could have asked us to do in remembrance of him, he asks us to come to a table. Why? Because it's at that table that we remember that which is most good, most redemptive, most true. That we carried a debt. We were born into that debt, and that debt was paid. And even the most devastating hurts we go through will never be enough to override that gift. So friend, you, are invited to this table. Come to the table, the table of sacrifice. Jesus has set that table for you. Why? Because really good things happen around tables. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.